Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall obtain mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when men revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven. For so men persecuted the prophets who were before you. You are the salt of the earth, but if salt has lost its taste, how shall its saltness be restored? It is no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trodden underfoot by men. You are the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hid, nor do men light a lamp and put it under a bushel, but on a stand, and it gives light to all in the house. Let your light so shine before men that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. Amen. Many of you have probably heard on the radio the Lutheran Hour one of my favorite preachers is Dr. Oswald J. Hoffman, who is the principal speaker for the Lutheran Hour. And uh, Ozzie and I have spent some time together at different places around the country. And uh, um, most of these Lutherans, of course, come from some of those foreign countries. <laughs> those of us who are from Germany don't usually say this. But uh, he is always telling jokes about the Swedes that uh, amused me, and he tells about the Swedes and the Norwegians apparently have something going with each other. And uh, he told me this. He said there was a, a, a Scandinavian friend of his whose name was Oli, and he was coming back from a fishing trip, and he met a friend who was also a Swede, and he said to him, Oli, what have you been doing? And uh, Oli said, well, what do you think I've been doing? He said, I got this fishing pole, and I got this here basket of fish. What you think? And the Swedes said, um, yeah, if I could guess how many fish you got in that basket, would you give me one of them? And Oli said, if you can guess how many fish I got in this basket, I'll give you both of them. <laughs> so the Swede guessed five. <laughs> and then Oli said, not bad for a Swede. You just missed it by two. <laughs> <laughs> The, the, uh, we sometimes miss the point in the whole Christian life by not understanding words. One of the most misunderstood words in the Bible is the word meek. That's the beatitude that we have to study today. Blessed are the meek, said Jesus, for they shall inherit the earth. All of us are familiar with that word from the beatitudes. And in looking at his beatitudes, we have seen that he is really speaking of another kingdom. He is speaking of a kingdom that we come into 
when we come into a saving relationship to him. I have an old and dear friend who loves the Bible and knows it a whole lot better than I do, who often calls me and asks what I'm going to preach on the next day and then proceeds to tell me some things that I ought to know about. He always tells me that the Beatitudes are not for this kingdom. He tells me they're reserved for the millennium. I had to tell him last week I didn't need them in the millennium. I need them now. <laughs> and I had to also tell him there are two or three things that you need to point out. There's no one going to be persecuting us during the millennium. So how can you say blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness sake? And uh, in the Lord's Prayer, which he doesn't like to pray because he says that's for another, <laughs> another kingdom. Uh, we pray deliver us from the evil one. And I always thought that in the millennium the devil was going to be bound. If he's bound, he's on a long chain. Uh, during the millennium, if you have to pray for deliverance from him. So here we go. Blessed are the poor in spirit happens to mean those who are humble. Now, if you think Jesus' words are impractical, then you just have to think about what the world would be like if people were arrogant and proud all the time. You could never achieve any sort of reconciliation. The cause of all the trouble that exists in the world today, and not only in the world, but in our homes and amongst our families and the places where we work is just because we try to live in the reverse of these attitudes. But when a person is born again, when he is touched by the power of God and brought into a new relationship to him, he is taught to live in a different way. He recognizes his own need of God. He recognizes that he is a pauper, he is a beggar, as Martin Luther said, one beggar telling another beggar where to find bread, and that he must go to God day after day, seeking from God forgiveness for his sins, seeking from God to bring his life into a right relationship to him. Last week we looked at the beatitude, blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. We can see that there are those who mourn for sin that exists in the world about us. And these people who have, been, who have been mourners for the sins of the world, mourners for their own sins, and people too who have had very real sorrow to mourn from because of death or sickness or loss. How Jesus utters this beatitude. I begin almost every service. There'll be a funeral here tomorrow. I do not conduct it, but every single service that I begin in a funeral seems to begin with those words, blessed are they that mourn for they shall be comforted. Now I'd like to end the service by pointing out that from the book of the Revelation, when we think about the glorious blessings of heaven, that God shall wipe away all tears from their eyes and there shall be no more sorrow nor death, for the former things are passed away. But there are those who mourn for sins, and those who do mourn for sins bring a lot of comfort to the world in which we live. You think about a young, strapping, tall man by the name of Abraham Lincoln who hired out to go down the river on a flat boat to New Orleans and who, making his way into New Orleans, was absolutely shocked when he saw human beings shackled together like cattle, paraded up onto a platform and auctioned off to the highest bidder. Lincoln was startled by it. It was his first close acquaintance with slavery. And he said if God would give him the power, he would strike a death blow to that thing. And he dedicated his life to doing just that. God worked in his life. 
because Lincoln was a man that could be taught by God and God taught him. And as a result of it, the whole wide world blesses his name. You can find statues of Lincoln in Russia. You can find statues of Lincoln in Manchester, England. You can find statues of Lincoln even in India. You can find statues of him many places because he was a very teachable man. He mourned for sins and for wrongs which he saw. And as a result of it, God brought great good out of that backwoodsman's life. And now we come today to this third of the Beatitudes, blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. When I was a little boy, there was a, always a cartoon in the funny papers. I think it was entitled, The Timid Soul. The star of the cartoon was Casper Milktoast. <laughs> Do you remember him? Yeah, I remember he was always very meek around his wife. <laughs> it, it seemed that the caricature of meekness was a, a timid person who was always being browbeat. Then on Fibber McGee and Molly, for those of you before television who listened to the radio, there was always poor Mr. Wimple, and he had his big fat wife who was always lording everything over him. And so we, we thought of a person uh, who was timid and self-effacing as meek. Actually, some of the most uh, hostile people I've ever seen in my life have been timid people. Uh, they store up a lot of pride inside them and they can't express their feelings uh, uh, like some others can. And so uh, they do have a, a tendency to store back a little anger and then later lash out. But meekness and weakness are not to be confused because they're not the same thing. We characterize them that. I did some study on the word meek. And in studying it, I found that in Greek, it's used uh, really for three things. First of all, the word meek was used as a soothing, to describe a soothing medicine that would sometimes be given to a person in fever or in pain who was restless, and it would help him to, to feel better. Now, that medicine had power in it. But if the medicine is controlled properly, it can bring great relief and a great deal of help. So meekness is interesting from that medical term. Then meekness also had to do with the taming or domesticating of a farm animal. I came from Texas, and we used to always love to go to the rodeos and to watch the wild broncos that were trying to be ridden by the cowboys who would come in. And I, I have seen uh, <laughs> relatives of mine who would uh, practice on, a, on an oil drum that people rig up so that it acts like a bucking bronco so that they could hold on to it. And then you go pay your money and you try to get into a rodeo and to hold on to a bucking bronco. Well, that bronco is full of energy and power. And I have seen uh, I remember an old cowboy that I used to know, and I wondered why his hands were, were gnarled. And it was because when that bronco would come forward with those tremendous neck muscles, he would pull the rope that was in his hand, and it would burn uh, the inside of his hand terribly. And as a young man, he had been a bronc buster. That was his job. You see, that wild horse is really not much good until he is broken. He may look good out there in the pasture, 
But all he can do is eat. You can't work him. You cannot do anything with him. But then when a person learns how to break him and to get him so that he can take a halter and then you can put a bit in his mouth, I'm sure that the horse doesn't like that bit and he says, get this thing out of my mouth, I don't like it. But when you break him to it and then he learns to accept the guidance which you are able to give him, he can do a lot of things. He can learn his rider Almost, uh, there's all, you can see those old cowboys out in West Texas who develop such an affection for their horse that it's just tremendous. Uh, they love the animal. And uh, they can almost communicate with each other. They spend hours and hours, day in and day out together. And a horse can read their mind practically, and they can read the horse's mind. I've had men call me when after a thunderstorm a horse would be cut up as a result of running into a barbed wire fence. And someone would say, I'm going to have to, to, to see to it that my horse is shot. And I just can't do it. Because of the uh, love that they had for the animal. You, you see that development that comes there. Well, when that horse is broken, he's tamed. That was a Greek word for meek. It's power brought under control. It means that the slightest touch of the knee the slightest pull on the rein, uh, the sound of your voice can cause that animal to obey. I can never forget once going to Mesquite, Texas with an uncle of mine and an old battered up pickup truck to trade some cows. And uh, there was a little cow pony by the name of Shorty that was there and, and I wanted to ride him and I was just a little boy. And so the wrangler who was in charge of these, uh, this particular corral let me ride him. And uh, there were some calves that he wanted uh, rounded up and brought up to the, to the uh, uh, holding area. And so I got on Shorty, and uh, this uh, wrangler said to the horse, he said, go get them, Shorty, and pointed to some calves. And so I was just along for the ride, literally. <laughs> I rode the horse and went down the, the way, and the horse began to line those calves up. He would, if one would break out, he'd run out there and get him and bring him back in line. He'd bite him on a rump. He would get him back uh, in, into a line, and he drove him right up to the, to the holding area where they were. And I thought I was doing all this. And uh, then when uh, uh, I had gotten off the horse, the wrangler took the saddle off the horse and took the bridle out of the horse's mouth. And there were still some more calves, and he pointed to them and said, go get them, Shorty. And Shorty went out and brought all them back. And I realized who was the smartest. Uh, uh, the first thing that you have to learn before you teach a horse is to be smarter than he is. And uh, this man was trying to teach me something, and he was teaching me how a, a tamed animal, a one that is brought under control, has that power, can do great things. And it's interesting to watch them. And that's what this Greek word means. It means uh, power under control. There are also other ways in which it is used. It's, it's used for a breeze. It was a nautical term used by some sailors. And uh, sailors would use it when they spoke of a favorable breeze uh, that would hit them. One that uh, they could uh, harness and use. Um, it also can be used to uh, the great flowing waters that can be harnessed to generate electrical power in our day and time, hydroelectric power, comes from power that is brought under control. 
And so then each of us have energy. Uh, each of us have power in our lives. And when that is brought under the control of the Holy Spirit, and if you will study in Paul's letter to the Galatians, there is a catalog of the fruits of the flesh. And if you read those fruits of the flesh, you will see all sorts of wickedness and evil that exists there. But then if you read those fruits of the Spirit, you will find that one of the fruits of the Spirit is meekness. And that meekness is a power that is brought under control and that is teachable. And that's a very beautiful thing. It means it is yielded to the hand of God to teach and to work with. There is a very, this week I've been thinking a good bit about bulbs because it's the time of the year when a lot of folks plant them. There is an old Dutch fable about some tulip bulbs that were in a tin. And these three tulip bulbs began to talk. Now this story isn't true. Um, and um, <laughs> as they talked, one of the bulbs uh, said, uh, you know, I've heard that outside of this dark tin box, there is a world and there is sun and rain and earth and that we could really be something out there. And uh, his name was Yes. And then there was another tulip bulb whose name was No. And he said, I don't believe it. I don't believe there is anything except what we are in this black tin box and that's all we'll ever amount to. And then there was another one whose name was Maybe. And Maybe said, well, maybe there is some truth to this. And maybe if we just tried, we could be better than we are. So Maybe squeezed and squeezed himself until finally wore out and rolled over into one corner of the tulip tin and shriveled up. And no, it already given up anyhow. But maybe kept hoping and praying. And then one day the gardener opened the can of the tulip tin and he reached into this tin of bulbs and no had shriveled up, maybe had worn himself out, but he took hold of yes. And he put him down into the good earth and the rain came and the sun shone, and then, yes, had the power of God, the Creator, at work in his life, and he burst forth in the spring of the year into a beautiful tulip. Well, there is a parable of the new birth in this. When we're born again by the Spirit of God and yielded to God, then God teaches us, he instructs us by his word. And if we live by his word and walk in the light of its truth, then our lives begin to change. The Beatitudes give us a picture of the mind of Christ. And you will remember from last Sunday's lesson and from the opening lesson, I tried to point out that when Paul, in writing his second letter to, in writing his second chapter of, of the letter to the Philippians, he points out let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus. And then he speaks of the humility of Christ in coming into this world. The thing that would stop the quarreling in churches. 
the thing that stops the quarreling between families, the thing that would do the most to promote harmony and work is when we adopt the mind of Christ. This is the thing that does it. It's not simply organization, because organization can get all out of gear, but it comes when we really allow the Holy Spirit to work the mind of Christ in us. This is what really counts. Someone told me about a, it doesn't have anything really to do with denominations. I was hearing about some church that uh, said the original church of God, number two. <laughs> and then uh, one guy out in Texas said there was two churches, one, one church that said the Harmony Baptist Church and one on the other side of town that said the New Harmony Baptist Church. Uh, so it doesn't really have to do with names. It has to do with the work of the Holy Spirit in each of our minds and in each of our lives. Now, how does the Holy Spirit work in our lives? He works by bringing our lives into conformity with the mind of Christ, and the mind of Christ is, is shown to those who had already committed themselves to him, to those disciples there in the Beatitudes, the attitudes that ought to be in our heart. And if we are meek and teachable, he is speaking to us. This week, I was reading in my devotions, Lord John Ogilvy, the distinguished minister of the enormous Hollywood Presbyterian Church out in uh, Hollywood, California. He has long been one of the preachers that I admire very much. And he was commenting on those words from Philippians 3.10, all I want is to know Christ and to feel the power of his resurrection, to share in his sufferings and become like him in his death in the hope that I myself will be raised from death to life, Philippians 3.10. And then he says these words, recalling his own youthful beginning. Quote, you're a very ambitious young man. I only pray that you will be ambitious for something that's worth achieving. This observation was made by a seasoned old saint who could see the fires of ambition burning within me and was concerned that I might be heading for the right thing for the wrong reason. I was the pastor of a brand new church and I wanted desperately to have the church grow and succeed, but my ambitions were ambivalent. I had the same burning desires for recognition, advancement, and popularity that burn within any 25-year-old graduate, uh, fresh out of graduate school. All my goals were outwardly magnanimous. I wanted to build up the membership and construct a great building of lasting beauty and contribute to the work of the church in that area. But why did I want to do it? I was challenged by the question, if you got where you were going, where would you be? Now let's stop and think about that a little more. If we got where we would go, where we are going, where would we be? If you accomplished your goals, what would you have? If you attained your ambitions, what would you possess? I was shocked to realize that my ambitions were all mixed up. Primary essential purposes were placed after what should be secondary goals. I wanted to build a great church and become an effective communicator and be a creative pastor. Good ambitions. 
I had decided that if I was to be a clergyman, I'd be the best possible. That seems to be laudable. The same ambitious nature which had been charged up by the taste of success in speech and drama were now baptized in the waters of religious activity. My inner nature was about to be invaded by my Lord, and the long, hard process of changing my character was about to begin. At just this time, J.B. Phillips' translation of Philippians was off the press and came into my hands for summer reading. I can still remember how shocked I was when the Holy Spirit used Dr. Phillips' translation of that scripture verse, Philippians 3.10, quote, how changed are my ambitions. You see, Paul had been listing a catalog of the things that he had sought after. And then how when Christ had come into his heart, how changed were Paul's ambitions. Now all I long to know is Christ and the power shown by his resurrection. Now I long to share his sufferings, even to die as he died, so that I may perhaps attain as he did, the resurrection from the dead. Now, how much of the work in our church would be changed if we really followed after seeking solely the glory of Christ? John Ogilvy has his devotional close with these words, Lord, I confess that I baptized my selfish ambition in religious activity. I often want to have you as one of my ambitions while I press on with my own self-centered ambitions. Jesus will not share the throne with another. And this is important for each one of us to remember. And so that's why the word meek, blessed are the meek, is so important. It's so important because it means that we are to be teachable, teachable by him teachable in our attitudes toward one another. Do you remember that gracious verse in Galatians where Paul tells us how to treat a backslider? If a brother be overtaken in a fault, ye which are spiritual, he says, restore such a one in the spirit of meekness, considering yourself lest you also be tempted. Ye which are spiritual, restore such a one. Do you know what that word restore there in Galatians means? It's like a, an orthopedic surgeon setting a bone that's been broken. Now, if you bro had your leg broken and you were taken over to Memorial Mission Hospital and went into the emergency room and they called for an orthopedic surgeon and he came and looked at it and said, give me a crowbar, give me a hammer, give me a monkey wrench. You wouldn't want that guy to treat you. Uh, you want someone who is gentle. You want someone who is meek and teachable, who has power that's under control, who can administer the kind of medicine that you need, but who can also add just the right kind of touch to you. When you hear about someone who is not living for the Lord, do you gloat about it? Do you say, oh, have you heard about so-and-so and what happened to him and his ministry and how he got involved with Miss so-and-so and all of that? That's horrible. Ye which are spiritual, 
If someone falls, then we are to be helpful to them, to restore such a one in a spirit of meekness. Blessed are the meek, the meek who will restore a brother or a sister in a way that will bring honor to the Lord. You've heard me use the illustration before, but it's worth using. I remember going to the Matterhorn uh, with uh, two of our sons, and we looked at that tremendous thing, and how in the world anyone ever climbs it, I'll never know. But when mountaineers are roped together and their mountain climbers are going up that thing, and they have those pitons that they, they take a hammer and drive into the little crevasses and seek to loop a rope in, and then they go to another one and another one and another one and try to work their way up five or six rope together. If one of them slips and falls, the other four don't take a knife and cut the rope and, and say, sorry about you, you've broken fellowship in our church. <laughs> uh, they, they, they all hold on, and they try to pull you back. I can remember reading about a, a great uh, English climber who, who had a man who was a climber also. They were rivals. Both of them had climbed tremendous peaks, and they were climbing someplace in Switzerland and the, together, and one of them fell and was killed, and there was a a lot of ugly rumors that got out that the other person hadn't done what he could. And so at the uh, meeting of the grand jury or the preliminary inquiry, whatever they called it, the inquest, uh, someone brought up the painful question if the second climber had really done what he could to save the one who had fall, fallen. And with his face all broken with tears, all he did was open up his hands and he showed them his hands that were burned clear through to the bone where he had tried to hold the rope when the man had fallen. If someone fell, another believer, and the Lord said, show me your hands. What have you done? Did you do anything to keep him from that? Did you call him up at the right time? Did you do something to help him? Or did you just stand back in spiritual smugness and gloat at him? You can't do that and be a meek person. Blessed are the meek, they'll inherit the earth. The people who are proud and arrogant and haughty fight each other to death. They just keep on fighting. Charles Rand Kennedy is a man who has written a tremendous drama in which he, it's called the terrible meek. And the last scene of the drama is when Jesus is nailed on the cross at Calvary. And that Roman centurion, you remember the one who said, this man must have been the son of God. Well, Mary was there and her heart was broken and she was crying and weeping and looking at her poor boy all battered and nailed on that cross. And the Roman centurion speaks to Mary. And he says, we go on building our kingdoms, the kingdoms of this world. We stretch out our hands greedy and grasping for money and luxury. These are what we aimed at. But what we've really gotten is death and famine and ghosts that haunt our lives forever. 
We Romans set out to conquer the earth, but we've lost it. We never did possess it. We lost both the earth and ourselves in trying to get it. And then there's that tremendous earthquake that takes place and darkness comes over the sun. And standing in the shadow of the cross, the centurion looks at Mary and he says, I tell you, lady, this dead son of yours, sped upon and disfigured, has built a kingdom today that can never die. The living glory of him rules it. The earth's his. He made it. Something's happened up here on this hill today. Something that's going to shake all the kingdoms. All the kingdoms of blood and fear are going to crumble into dust. Then looking up at Jesus, he said, the meek, the terrible meek, the fierce, agonizing meek, they're about to enter into their inheritance forever. Only a broken heart can accept a crucified Lord. There was a man once who wrote beautiful poems. He was sick from his youth with a nervous disorder that troubled him terribly. He came to know a man by the name of John Newton who showed him the love of Christ, who took him on long walks and who did what he could to calm him in his nervous fears and who introduced him into a saving relationship with Christ. That man's name was William Cowper. And one of the most touching autobiographies I ever read was Cowper's Stricken Deer. He describes himself, I was a stricken deer that left the herd long since, with many an arrow deep in fixed. My panting side was charged when I withdrew to seek a tranquil death in distant shades. There was I found by one who had himself been hurt by the archers. In his gentle force, soliciting the darts, he drew them forth and healed and bade me to live. Bow in prayer. Our Heavenly Father, we pray that thou will take the lesson which we have from what we've studied this morning and enable us to put it into practice when we go to our homes and as we read your word and as we walk day by day in an effort to bring glory to you. Guide us by the Holy Spirit's power to bear the fruit of meekness in our lives. Now may the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God our Father and the communion and fellowship of the Holy Spirit, our keeper and guide, be and abide with us all now and forevermore.